I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. And this is Kate. Today, we have an amazing interview with Tracy Stanley. Well, I will just say that I don't know that we were amazing, but Tracy Stanley's amazing. She is a yoga teacher who has been studying yoga and Tantra since 1995. She came actually from um, being a high-level executive in the film industry, and she really realized that in the high-stress environment she was in, her practice was able to bring balance and calm to her life. And then her colleagues started coming to her and asking, how are you so calm and awesome? And so that's how her yoga practice developed. She's a beautiful teacher who I had the pleasure of taking a yoga nidra class with at Wanderlust in West Virginia a couple of years ago, and it was incredibly powerful. So we talk about the power of rest and what yoga is actually about. And what else did we talk about, honey? We talked about her film career and what it's like to be a movie producer because we were interested in that. We also, she answered a great question when I asked her what was the purpose of life. She gave an amazing answer, like really probably one of the best I've ever heard. Not that we're rank what the purpose of life answers are. It was just really touches your soul. And she didn't even have to think about it. No, it's it right wasn't off. like, uh, hmm, let me think. She just was like, boom. We talked about, she had a really beautiful answer, which you'll want to listen in for. You might hear Ruby hiccuping in the background. <laughs> you'll want to listen in for her answer about really how we can, on a macro and micro level, heal the division in the world right now. Her answer made me cry. It was great. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Tracy. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be thanks, here. Thank you thanks for, for being here. So I had the pleasure of sitting in on, well, not sitting in on, enjoying. The first time I ever did Yoga Nidra was with you at Wanderlust last summer. And I walked into that room feeling so dead. I was so tired. I don't, I think it was partially the altitude. Exhausted, just like I felt like I needed a four hour nap. I felt like I was going to quit for the day. And then we did 20 minutes. You just took us on this journey. And in 20 minutes, I felt like a completely new person. It was so magical. And your voice is divine. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that because basically you did take a four hour nap. Uh, 35 minutes of yoga nidra is said to be the equivalent of four hours of sleep. So how oh. did you discover yoga nidra? I discovered yoga nidra when I was looking for a yoga teacher to do a teacher training with. And everybody that I asked who I respected and had been doing yoga for a long time, a lot of the elders in my community kept pointing to Rod Stryker. And I went and I did one of his classes and he had a satsang afterwards, which is kind of like a little circle of community where people talk and about whatever is timely in the moment. Kind of like the old time podcast, actually, now that I think about it. But he led us through this practice. I had no idea what it was, what it was called. It was the first time that I had meditated lying down where I felt like I could 
completely just surrender my body and follow his voice through this journey. And I was like, this is next level. Like I've never felt like this before. I've never felt so restored. I've never felt so peaceful and blissful. Mm. So that was about 17 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So you've been at this for a long time. So can you describe for those, we have had an episode in the past, we had Karen Brody on, the author of Daring to Rest. So we have chatted about Yoga Nidra, but for those who are new, would you mind sharing what it is? And, and, and like you said, the benefit is like getting a four hour nap, but I'm sure there are more there's more to it. Wow. There's so many different modalities that you can use yoga nidra for. So it's very beneficial for healing, for the deep restoration of the body, bringing you into the parasympathetic nervous system, that kind of rest, relax and renew space. It's also great for cognitive and memory. People have been known to memorize speeches in different languages, to prep for tests. I learned a very long mantra using Yoga Nidra. You know, it's great for Sankalpa, which is intention, kind of planting a seed of something that you want to achieve in that deep space of the void. It's amazing for creativity, but really it's a practice for spiritual transformation. It's a practice to realize your true nature and to kind of touch that light that's inside of you that never goes out, that's always eternal. So you really get in touch with your radiance and your power. And if you wanna talk about you know, the science aspect of it, it takes you through the brainwave state so that you're moving into Delta and maybe even Theta. And it takes you through the states of consciousness. So the waking, dreaming, sleeping, and deep sleep, and then beyond kind of deep sleep, it takes you into what's called Turiya, which is like the silence after the Om. So once you Om, there's like this silent syllable that represents kind of consciousness, and it's said to take you into that place. So it's beyond a technique. You know, we kind of refer to it as a technique, but it's really a state of consciousness. And the techniques that we do are kind of preparing you to be able to surrender fully into that place where there is nothing, including any thought or any awareness that you're even feeling bliss. There's just nothing there. You're just completely in the void. <sighs> Makes me want to sneeze. Then it went away. It was a <laughs> that is so amazing. And, and honestly, hearing you talk about it, I'm understanding it on a much deeper level than I did before. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Now you came to LA and then you've been in the film industry as a producer. Do you still work in the film industry these days? I have two projects that are still kind of lingering. There's always like as a, you know, film producer kind of never dies, right? It's like you always have that one project or that one book that you're still hanging on to. So I'm not actively day to day in film. I'm working with a couple of different companies as passive producers on projects. So when they need me to put a call into somebody that I might've worked with before, I call, I read the script, I give them notes but it's really like takes up maybe one one hundredth of my time. And that's really kind of how I like it at the moment. So. And what exactly as a film producer, what are you exactly doing? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a friend here that is a, a director, right? And so 
he's always comes to us and he's like, you guys would be great film producers. And we're like, Michael, I don't know what that means. It's like, what, do, what are we doing? So it's funny when we were preparing for this interview, I was like, let's just ask her. She's already a film producer. What is she doing? <laughs> or well, what did you no. used to do? Or what did you used well, to do? Film producer has many different definitions. It can be anything from the person who found the script to the director's girlfriend who's not doing anything <laughs> on the movie to the person who brings in the money or the person who brings in the actor to the person who actually puts everything together. So I was a creative producer. I would find the script. I would then hire a director. And a lot of times I really like to work with writer directors to give them their kind of first shot at directing their first movie. And then I would work with them to develop the script. I would cast the movie with the casting director. Then I would hire a line producer. And the line producer is the person who's kind of responsible for the budget, right? To making sure that whatever money we have actually goes to where it's supposed to go. And then I always worked with financing companies. So the people that I worked with or for were always financiers. So I always had access to the money that I needed to make the films that I wanted to make. So that made it a lot easier. But, you know, if you have the capacity to be able to put things together and make stuff happen, basically you can be a producer. Oh, so maybe that's why he's so, not, we I can think, be producers. I think so. That's yeah. what You're producing a podcast, right? Yeah. Right. We are producers, just oh, not as films. The Kate and Mike Show is brought to you by the executive producer, Kate Watts, and Kate Northrup Watts, and Michael Watts. Excuse me. There we go. Exactly. So now we have credits. So one of the things, you know, you've hung out with a lot of A-list celebrities and been, you know, I feel like also living in LA, I'm sure you just like run into famous people a lot. I used to in New York, you yeah. know, I just was like, I don't know. It's just different than living in Maine where we live. Right. There's just not so many famous people, <laughs> which I, which I love. <laughs> yeah, LA is a magical place because every place you go, you seem like you're famous. I know. Like it just makes you. Everybody there looks famous. Like it's you, just like a whole thing. You walk into a restaurant and everybody's looking at who walks through the door. It's, it's such a weird and I'm like, I am here. Yes, I am, people. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's Thank very you. true. When I first moved here from New York, that was the, one of the things that I first noticed. I walked into a club and everybody is like turning around like, who is that? Who is that? It's like, wow, like everybody here kind of wants to be someone or has come here to be someone. And it creates a very interesting dynamic for sure. So what's the, tell me from being an insider in the business and then sort of like moving out of the business, except for the 1% of the 1% of your time. Tell me about what that journey was like for you, why you started practicing yoga, teaching yoga, and then what it's like to still live in LA in the scene, but be in this whole other on this spiritual journey. Mm, that's such a great question. Well, I was lucky enough that I had discovered yoga right at the time that I went into the film business. So I was practicing kundalini yoga five days a week at the same time that I was reading scripts and taking meetings and my awareness was starting to develop, right? I was starting to wake up. I was starting to wake up to, oh, maybe this relationship isn't the best relationship for me. Maybe, you know, I'm too shy because I'm actually very introverted and just being able to rely on some of the practices. I remember the first time walking into CAA, my first meeting there, 
and coming in as head of development for this little tiny company that had like three people and walking into the room with 15 men in suits sitting down with my boss and my boss apparently was nervous. I didn't know this. And he said to me, oh, so you can just pitch them all of our projects. And I thought I was just going to be sitting there taking notes. And it was just like, okay, I have to actually step into my power and empower my voice right now. Like, where do I bring my attention in my body? I'm going to bring it into my third chakra, right? And so I started to focus there. And before I knew it, the meeting was over and everybody like loved it. So I feel like it went hand in hand. My waking up and being in this business and being able to watch my career start to really build and going from making, you know, one movie every year to making 12 and having three people in the company to having 50 to, you know, being responsible to for half a billion dollars worth of financing and also watching, being able to be an observer of myself to make sure that my ego wasn't starting to get in the way because I was also watching what was happening to other people that I worked with and how they were being affected by having a lot of money all of a sudden or hanging out with famous people. But I think the thing that really struck me the most is that the people I worked with you look at them and you think, oh, they're famous. They have so much money. They can do whatever they want. They have these amazing lives. They would consistently ask me, what do you do to stay so calm? What do you do to stay so centered? And there was a lot of misery from the top A-list people that you could imagine that were miserable. And I thought, you know what? The people that I know that are practicing yoga and really living yoga are happier and more content than these people who have millions of dollars and are famous. So I need to be able to share what I know with these people, including the crew members and the directors. And so I just started to create opportunities to bring yoga and wellness onto the sets so that people could experience it. But, you know, having this journey led me to realize at some point that bringing people these practices was more important than making another action movie, <laughs> right? Was that primarily what you were making was action films? I was making action movies and then I convinced my boss to let me start to make smaller movies that were more important, that I thought were more important anyway. And so <laughs> I started doing that and then I left for another company whose focus was primarily making films that were raising consciousness. And I did that for a while and then when the downturn happened, they slowly started to shift their you know, mission statement to making horror movies and things that we said we would never do. And that was when I said, okay, this is my sign that I've really got to move forward and kind of do what my heart is really calling me to do and not do something just because I need a paycheck, right? It's really be able to live my passion and be on purpose with everything that I do and say. Hmm. So... Chasing the buck. Right. <laughs> right. You know, that's what, like you, that company you were just working for, it's describing, it's like, okay, we can make money from horror movies. So let's go that direction. Yeah. And, and I get it when you need to feed your kids and pay the mortgage and, you know, and 
also, mm-hmm. obviously you felt called to something else. So I would love to know, because you're touring with Wanderlust, you're doing beautiful work, teaching teacher trainings and doing your online courses. And how did you get started in the yoga business? Because there's the teaching of yoga, which is one thing, but then there's making a go at it for real, where you can, you know, pay the bills and all that stuff. And so do you have any wisdom for those in the business of yoga or in the business of wellness of how to make it work? That's a great question. And if I had the exact answer to that, (laughs) well, what I can tell you, (laughs) what I did when I started teaching yoga is I didn't quit my day job. Smart. So in 2001, I actually opened a yoga studio and that was at the height of what I was doing in the film business. So I started with a safety net of being able to develop myself as a teacher and to continue to study as much as I could while I actually had a job so that my teaching, I felt like I wasn't trying to fit into the cookie cutter that everyone else was doing, like whatever was popular. I wasn't trying to do that because I didn't need to. It was more about let me practice the things and that are powerful for me, embody them into myself and then be able to share them from a place of being embodied and not from a place of, oh, everybody wants vinyasa. So that's what I'm going to teach. So my classes were always smaller But I feel like they were powerful classes because I was teaching from a place that was really sacred. It wasn't like I was trying to make money. And I think at the time, I didn't know that this was what I was doing, but I think it led me to be an authentic teacher where I was really teaching from a place of authenticity and from what I know and not comparing myself to other teachers and what they were doing and how they were teaching and thinking that I needed to be you know, the next, whoever it was. So I think finding your true voice as a teacher, continuing to study, I feel like there's a lot of teachers who they kind of get their certification and they have this idea that, okay, they're going to start an online course and they, you know, get it out there. And that the mindset is that the studying is done. It's like the studying is not done. The studying is always happening. And to just be able to, Give yourself opportunity to experience different teachers and have different experiences so that you can speak from a place of wisdom and knowing is a lot different than having to, you know, refer back to your books all the time because you don't actually know what it is that you're teaching. So being authentic is kind of the first thing that I would say, not quitting your job completely until you really feel like you have a footing in your career. I think one of the turning points for me was when Marianne Williamson invited me to come and teach with her when she was doing the course in weight loss. She had the, do you remember that book? Yep. So that was kind of an interesting turning point because she invited me to come. I had given her a private yoga class and I arrived in San Diego on the beach and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to teach yoga in the morning and then I'm going to, you know, relax for the rest of the day until I have to teach at night. (laughs) And she pulled me aside in the morning before everything was starting and she said, I want you to understand that you are here to hold space, that you, once the yoga class is over, 
you are here right next to me on stage as a co-facilitator holding space because you never know when someone is going to have their moment of transformation, whether it's going to be with me, whether it's going to be with you in the bathroom, whether you're going to meet somebody at lunch and they're going to just have a breakdown. You are here as a space holder. And that shifted my entire understanding of what teaching was about because I really learned what that meant. Wow. What do you mean when you say holding space? Holding. Like, what does that mean? Well, for me, it means being available, being vulnerable, being non-judgmental, being able to see people and meet them where they are and to let them know that they're safe, right? To let them know that it's a place that is a container that we're gonna say like it's an energetic container almost that is sealed. And even when, so in this particular instance, we were leading a three-day retreat and there was 150 people there, that even when you are sleeping, you are still aware, your consciousness is still aware that you're holding that space for those people because their breakthrough could happen at any time. So for me, it's about having a container that feels safe and something, you know, there's obviously another element to it where I think that when you tell people at the beginning of a class or beginning of a workshop that you're in a container that is sacred and that anything that's shared in that container is not to be shared outside of the container, even when you, if you share something really personal and someone resonates with it, that person shouldn't approach you at lunchtime and start to talk about it, right? Unless you're invited, you don't speak about it, right? So those are the kind of things that I mean when I, when I say hold space. And I think that a lot of teachers do not have the skills yet. They haven't built the skills or maybe even had a teacher model the skills for them of how to actually hold a nurturing space where people can have transformation because that's where transformation happens. And then how has your like studying of yoga changed over time? You know, like in 2001, what did it look like for you? And then what's it look like today now that you have many years under your belt? Well, in a lot of ways, it looks very much the same. I still study with the same teacher and I go to see him in Colorado twice a year for a five day event, you know, depending on what it is. I now take many other trips kind of overseas to India and do a lot of studying there. A lot of my study, I like to call myself the yogini in the lab because I do a lot of just experimentation on myself, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just as far as especially with things like yoga nidra and creativity because I'm working on a writing project right now. And at some point, you know, I was sitting here in my office trying to like bang it out and I thought, wait a second you know, I know this space of the void where all of these, you know, inspirations can come forward. I need to change my writing room. So I switched to the downstairs writing room and I created, well, it's a bedroom. I created a writing room down 
there that has my harmonium and it has a yoga nidra nest and it has space for me to meditate so that I can do all of those things and be able to create from that space, which is more of a feminine, nurturing, womb-like space as opposed to this, which is kind of a little bit more masculine and linear. Right. So I'm starting to use all of the different tools that I've gathered over the years to empower me in a lot of different ways. You know, study is constant. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly learning. I spend time with my teachers. I look for new teachers. And if I could, if someone could pay me just to read, that would be really good. (laughs) I'm with you there. So can we talk, because you're very clear, not only on your website, but also as we're speaking here about your lineage in yoga and studying in India and where it comes from and following up with teachers and really being, being a true scholar of yoga, but then also a true practitioner. And I feel like that's not always the case in the yoga world, right? So Mm -hmm. can we talk a little bit about what you see in terms of the lineage of yoga, how it shifts coming into the Western world and, you know, how to walk that line as not only a a yoga student, but also a teacher of like carrying forward this ancient practice, but then also the tendency for our culture to culturally appropriate things that are not our own. Can you just talk about, I don't really have anything in mind there, but I'm just curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, we love to take something from other cultures and capitalize on it. Yeah. To make it our own and to hybridize it and make it something that it's not. And I think that there is a danger in that because it loses its power at some point. And so in yoga, there's this idea of transmission and transmission comes from lineage and the lineage is something that is unbroken and usually it's unbroken passed down from teacher to teacher for maybe 3000 years right so if if i do a practice that was given to me from my teacher that he did for 20 years that his teacher before him did for however many years and it goes back and back and back and i've been doing it for you know 15 years it's going to have a lot more power than if I read it in a book, right? Depending on which book, there's some books that have Shakti, but if I read it in a yoga magazine and said, oh, this is what I'm gonna teach today because this is the sequence that they featured this month. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have the same kind of power. It doesn't have the same kind of transmission. So I feel like we do have to be careful about taking on something and feeling like we own it. You know, there was a a woman that I study with. Her name is Sheila Bringy, and she's an amazing Indian singer. She, She chants. She's Bhakti singer. She plays the harp. She plays the flute. And she made a comment on her Facebook page about the fact that one of the local Bhakti yoga festivals had no Indian musicians in the entire festival. And so I feel like when we put things together like conferences and when we put things together like teacher trainings, we need to be able to make sure that we are including people who actually are from the culture because it gives us a completely different context to where these teachings come from. Yeah. You know, I have somebody in my teacher training now who this is her first teacher training 
she's not a yoga teacher. She pra- she's been practicing yoga, but she's from India. And when we started doing some of the mantras, she's like, I know these mantras. These mantras were mantras that my grandmother used to sing to me. And because I was such a rebel, I didn't want to hear them. <laughs> I didn't want to know them. I didn't want to practice them. Wow. And she's like, now they're coming back. And I can tell that she ha- she's going to be an incredible teacher. She already has a connection to these mantras that I could never have. Mm. And I've been chanting them for 15 years. So that has to be recognized. You know, we don't get to just take something and make it our own and forget where it came from. Yeah. Thank you for that. I feel like you bring a level of respect and honoring Mm -hmm. to it that sometimes is missed. And then how have you kept your focus? Like, because there's consistency here. Same teacher for 20 years, you know, saying a mantra for 15 years, like, what has, and maybe you've gone off, let's say the path, right. Of your, con, I'll just say like your consistent path. Right. And then not been caught up in the next shiny object that's come along. Hmm. Like what's allowed you to just say, to experience this depth. That is such a great question because I feel like the lineage itself of the Himalayan masters and my teacher in particular, Rod Stryker, has depth. He has discipline. He's somebody who has been practicing and studying yoga since he was 19. And 40 years later, he still is doing it and doing it with the same passion and zeal that he did when he was young. So I think by the virtue of the fact of who I am, just in general, you know, I'm not someone who looks for the next shiny thing. When I find something that I know works, whether it's a relationship, right, or a teacher, I'm there for the long haul. If I start to see signs that there's something not right, then I will quickly move in the opposite direction. But, you know, even in my film career, I worked for two companies, you know, for 20 years of a career. So um, I feel like that's part of what is missing in the modern yoga world is this idea of discipline, this idea of the fact that we have a practice that we know it works cumulatively. The more you do it every day, the deeper it is. Those grooves are really getting, you know, the, we talk about the neural pathways in the brain, right? It's like those grooves are deep at this point. And that's the thing that I think we're missing is that we're constantly looking for the practice that's going to validate us, you know, the practice that's going to change us, the practice that's going to make us abundant, the practice that's going to let us manifest. And instead of digging a really deep well, we just keep digging little holes everywhere. And then we wind up with just a little bit of water instead of something that could sustain us for a really long time. And I feel like, that's something that I try to impart to my students. So, you know, when we do teacher training, we're meeting once a month and they have a 30 day practice that they have to do every day in between that time. And the reason is because it starts to build that muscle of discipline. So if we can be disciplined in our yoga practice, disciplined in how we decide to follow through with something to the end, we have the discipline to change because you can't change, you can't transform if you don't have discipline. There's an element of fire that you have to walk through in order to make one thing into something else, right? And if you don't have discipline, you're never going to be able to walk through that. 
how do you think you learned that? Did you grow up in a family that focused on discipline? Was it a spiritual, you know, family kind of upbringing? Tell me a little bit about where you come from. Well, my father was a strict disciplinarian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is for sure. So he was extremely strict. I mean, my parents, I would say my mom was less strict, but she kind of went along with the flow with my dad. He was very proud of the fact that in the whole time of us growing up, they never let us with a babysitter. We were never out of their sight for literally more than 10 minutes. And that's how it was. So, you know, there was no going to sleepovers. There was no going to brownie camp. It was very, very strict. And my grandmother was a preacher. Okay. So she was a preacher. So I definitely learned how to be disciplined, you know, at a very early age, although I had a very rebellious spirit, which, you know, they tried to break many times, but it didn't work. So <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, seeing the value at some point when I got older of being disciplined. And I always had, you know, certain things, even when I was, you know, a teenager, when people would show up late, I wouldn't understand how is it possible that you could be late, like all the time? <laughs> I don't understand. So being disciplined is definitely something that's ingrained in me, for sure. Where did you grow up? Long Island. Yeah. Now you talked about planting a seed in the void. And I'd love to talk about the Sankalpa. I'd love to talk about intention and the, and the pieces of that and what's drawn you to that out of all the different aspects of yoga that could be, you know, your thing for lack of a better way to describe it. <laughs> right? <Okay. laughs> so, so what, talk to us about that and what it is that turns you on about the Sankalpa. Well, there's two things that turn me on about the Sankalpa. So the first thing is that it's so powerful and that it works, right? It's kind of like the first time you do a vision board and you forget about it and then you find it like four years later and you were like, holy crap, everything on this vision board happened. Like, how did that happen? When I heard the phrase or the quote from Swami Rama that in order for your sankalpa to come into fruition, it needs to be a perfect sankalpa. And then an imperfect sankalpa is something that is informed by doubt. And so I started to think about this and through some teachings with my teacher, Rod Stryker, you know, he made it very clear that we all have a negative mental construct that he calls a v-kalpa that is kind of running the show. And we're completely unaware of what it is. And it's kind of our job in life to find out what is that negative mental construct? What is that belief that we're running that is keeping us from actually being powerful? And it's also keeping us from being able to fulfill our sankalpas. So we can either fulfill a sankalpa or we can create a sankalpa that is in service of the limiting belief, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? How do you create a sankalpa that's in service of the limiting belief? Like that would be not a good thing to do? Right. Right, obviously. Yeah. So it's basically like, let's say my limiting belief is that my voice doesn't matter, right? My voice doesn't matter. I should be invisible. And somebody offers me a job and I sit in the room with that person and they don't even let me get a word in edgewise. Right. So I, I already know from a visceral place that 
this is not going to be great because I'm not going to be able to express myself, but I go ahead and decide that I'm, I'm going to stay at this job and I'm going to stay there for five years and I'm going to try to work my way up. That's going to be my sunkalp is to work my way up in the chain of command. And then two years later, I realized that it's not working because I'm not being heard. I've put myself in a position where it's not possible for me to be seen or heard. It's fulfilling the sankalpa that you did yeah. not mean to plant. Yeah. It's almost like you're self-sabotaging yourself. It seems like a really good idea, right? Like it's aspirational. It's like, I'm going to be a VP, but I'm actually going to be a VP in a prison that's keeping me small. Where I can't be heard. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Exactly. I married my Vicalpa, so I understand how this works pretty clearly. <laughs> are, you, are you divorced now? And I divorced and we got divorced. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We do tend to attract the people who bring up the wounds that need to be healed. And it was perfect. Yeah. We've had some episodes about the way that we have come together <laughs> to heal certain wounds within ourselves as well. So we, yeah, we get that. So should we talk about those right now? No. No, I'm just kidding. No, they're relevant to Tracy. <laughs> we'll spare you. But I am curious, what, so how do you know, like, what are some of your practices for uncovering, let's say, the V-culpas that mm-hmm. are not serving you so that you are not perpetually planting the seeds for the stuff that you don't actually want to grow? Okay. So... The ancient practice, I didn't make it up, (laughs) it comes from the Yoga Sutras. It's a practice of vichara, and it means basically that you are kind of tracing a feeling or maybe even an event back into the very first time that you could remember feeling it, right? So if you had asked me maybe six years ago, even five years ago to be on this podcast, I probably would have said no. And the reason would be because I didn't want to be seen, right? I didn't want to be seen. And I had to get to the bottom of what is it about being seen and heard that is holding me back. And the way that I worked with this is that when something came up where I had an opportunity to really be seen in a very big way, I felt this sensation in my body and I'm like, okay, I need to pause. Like instead of distracting myself with Instagram or something else, let me just pause and see what does this feel like? And as I started to trace back, I'm like, okay, when was the last time I felt this way? And I kept tracing back and back and back and back and back. And I finally got to this place where I was bullied in school. And I realized that I had this limiting belief that it actually wasn't safe for me to be successful. It wasn't safe for me to be smart. And so it's like, oh, okay. So now what do I do with that? Now that I understand it, because now that I see it, I get to diminish it a little bit because now I start to look where else is that showing up? And I have to do the opposite. I have to be able to show up. And that's where we start to create a sankalpa that is the antithesis of that thing. And in Rod's book, he calls it a Dharma code and it's a whole different kind of process around it. But being able to have something that we can plant in our yoga nidra 
right? That's now a sankalpa that's going to move us forward towards our dharma and away from this place that keeps us stuck. Hmm. Now, can you define dharma for those who are listening who don't know what that word means? Dharma, well, it's been defined as life's path, but I would say it's really your life's purpose, Mm -hmm. right? It's like we are all here to fulfill some unique destiny. You know, we all have a unique gift. It's like, yes, there may be a lot of podcasts on air right now, but you guys have a unique gift, which is why your podcast is special, right? You're shining your unique light, your unique gifts, and you're bringing them to the world. And I'm doing the same thing. There's a million yoga teachers, right? There's even maybe a thousand yoga teachers focusing on Sankalpa, but I have something unique that I'm bringing to it. So it's finding that piece of yourself that's unique that is going to help serve the highest good for everyone, right? And that goes back to the question that you asked before about what advice is there to give to yoga teachers is find that piece of yourself and be able to shine it out. Right, that's the authenticity piece that you you, you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, how do you, and maybe you don't, but there's so much right now, and you know, always has been, but we are in a particularly communicative, heated time, especially on the internet, about, you know, about oppression and the ways that our systems do not serve everybody. So how do you negotiate or work with the fact that like, yes, we are all in some ways planting seeds in the void that grow, but then there are certain ways that the world just works right now that do not serve everybody. So how do we balance those two things, like with racism and sexism and all the, you know, homophobia? And do you think about those? I mean, I'm sure you do think about those. Yes, I do think about them all the time. I can't avoid it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I would say, you know, there's like, if we take what's happening right now with the children at the border, yeah, that, you know, yes, we should be donating. We should be raising our voices. We should be raising awareness, but we should also be looking within ourselves to see how do we do that same behavior? Yes. You know, the stepmother who rejects, the child from another relationship when she's married to the man, how are you repeating that same pattern? Hold on. Can you explain more about the example you're trying to share? So how are we, so the children at the border and how does that make us feel? And then how are we doing that in our own lives? Correct. Right? So it's like if my daughter once like, comes up to me and I just reject her right away, you know, without even listening to her or something like that. Is that what you're like an example that we are. Well, you know, the, it's the world is the mac- macrocosm, right? And our yep. life and even our body is the microcosm, right? So take, for example, if there's a married couple and this is your second marriage and you decide, and this is very common, that the stepmother decides, I don't want anything to do with the mm-hmm. children you had. We're going to have our own baby and our own family, and I'm going to just reject this other fan and th- these other kids, right? That's a perfect example of you deciding that you have your own country. Yeah, <laughs> right? Totally. You are not going to let in the other people from the other country, even though they were here before you were. Yeah, they're the indigenous people and you're telling them they can't come in. 
So looking for those examples in our own life to see where are we withholding love? It's very easy to point at the president or to point at, you know, the politicians and say, they're not doing, they're not doing. Where are you withholding love? Where are you withholding nurturing? That's how I look at it. Thank you. That's just what I needed to hear today. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, it's been, it's been really heavy, you know, and it's always been heavy, right? There's been terrible things going on since the dawn of time, but for whatever reason, I think it's because I just had an infant. So I'm like, you know, you get into this really porous place and many people are porous all the time. I am, and I'm hyper porous. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's that, I think that that is such a powerful message and I really, really appreciate Mm -hmm. your perspective. I really do. And the one other thing is when you feel something rising up in you, you know, from that, it's like listening to NPR and I'm listening to the sounds of these children crying for their mothers. It's like, what else does it bring up in you? What other wound does it bring up in you that also needs to be healed? Sorry, I just wanted to say that. No. So powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's the abandoned child in all of us, right? Like, I'm, I'm sure not everybody has abandonment issues, but like, I bet a lot of us do. Obviously, I do because I'm tearing up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then so it, to follow, to heal those pieces. So when I'm hearing something on NPR it, that says like, oh, wow, this is, and then it clicks to be like, oh, I had this when I was five, you know? And so for us to like, would it be wise of, I'll just say Mike to go and heal that piece of myself? Because if I try to like, if I'm lacking that and then I go try to help these kids at the border, you know, that's like physically go there and, and that it's not a, like, I'm not whole to go help. Right. Is that kind of what you're alluding to here? Well, I mean, yes, go help the kids at the border, but don't forget your own wound. Take time to heal it because those kids definitely need you. They need you to be there. They need you. And you can empathize because Mm -hmm. of some wound that you might have. But the fact of the matter is, is that just dealing with it externally is not going to heal it internally, right? It's like, we're not going to be able to heal ourselves just by continuing to give and give and give from a place that's not overflowing. Right. You know, you giving your, doing your own healing is going to bring your cup to overflow and then you give from the overflow. And then maybe you even give in a more powerful way because you're giving from a place of healing and not from a place of brokenness. Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, it can be both at the same time, right? We can heal ourselves while helping others. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, the ultimate realization there is really that you're already whole. There is no broken. Yeah. Right, we feel broken, but there is no broken. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm curious about, I know we're winding or wrapping up here, but just your experience in South Africa. Oh boy, you saved the best for last almost. <laughs> just a small question. <laughs> just and for those like because we read a little bit about it from, you know, some of your website, et cetera, in an article a couple articles that you're featured in. But just for the listeners, could you just you were traveling for a while and you were in Paris for a, about a year and then you decided uh-huh. to go to South Africa. I did. I went to South Africa and it was right after Nelson Mandela was elected president. You know, he'd just been kind of released from prison, elected president. 
and they had asked me to go to South Africa previous to that, and I refused to go because the agent basically said, oh, you know, we'll stamp your passport honored white and everything will be fine. Don't worry about being black and going to, you know, post-apartheid, or at that time it was actually apartheid South Africa. I was like, there is no way that you are going to stamp my passport honored white. It's just not happening. I'm not going. So as soon as he was elected president, I got a call, and I just happened to be watching CNN at the time that I got the call, and there were celebrations happening in the street. And I thought to myself, if I don't go at this time, to witness and be a part of this. I'm crazy. I'm on the plane. You know, I have to say from somebody growing up very privileged in Long Island, landing in South Africa and having the taxi driver purposely drive me through the shantytown to show me where the black Africans lived. It was beyond words it really allowed me to see, you know, you talk about pairs of opposites, right? It really allowed me to see what the lack of awareness of love and oneness can create, that people actually thought that they were in their rights to create a life like this for other people. So it was an interesting place to be, You know, there were a lot of liberal South Africans that were white that were still, you know, that were living there that had voted, obviously, for Mandela. And I knew many of them and, you know, roomed with many of them. But it was also an interesting way of kind of getting in touch with this idea that it takes a village to raise a child, is that you don't own anything. Everything belongs to the village, So I remember getting on a plane to actually Nelson Mandela's hometown with one of my girlfriends to judge a beauty competition that they were having for the girls and they didn't have any makeup. So we were like, okay, we're going to bring our makeup and we're going to do their makeup for the beauty competition. I got on the plane. It was sweltering hot. I had a bottle of water and an old man took the bottle of water out of my hand and took a drink from it and handed it back to me. And, you know, coming from New York at that time, I was like, what? (laughs) I'm like, wait a second. I have something and it belongs to everybody. Mm. It belongs to everybody. And that really shifted something in my awareness just about family, right? And what it means to be part of a larger family. So there were so many different experiences that I had there. I had a spiritual awakening there. I lost all of my belongings there. And it was the moment when I decided that I was no longer going to model because that's why I was there when I lost everything. And I just had finished reading Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And I had this flash of when the gas station was burning down. And I saw like someone had broken into the car and all of my stuff was gone. And there was like one shoe. (laughs) (laughs) One shoe. And I'm like, Oh, this is like the scene in Way of the Peaceful Warrior where I'm just done. This is a sign that I'm done modeling. And I had already been feeling it. You know, there had been some things that had been happening that I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure if this is the right path for me to continue on. And that was just it. And I was like, I looked in the backseat of the car and I had been reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography. 
and the book was still in the car and it had my passport and my ticket home. And I was like, okay, I am calling the airlines and I'm going to be getting on the plane as soon as I can. Wow. And that was it. And that shifted everything. Being able to really feel that I could like hear that place of intuition and knowing within myself and then having the balls, I'm just going to say, to actually follow through with it because my agency wasn't happy. They're like, what do you mean? The Germans have booked you for catalog and, you know, they never book black girls. It's like, I don't care. I'm done. I'm gone. Wow. So that was a huge growing spurt for me. And a lot of waking up happened. A lot of waking up to who I was and who I wanted to be and the types of people that I wanted to spend time with. Cause I met so many amazing people there that I'm still friends with. And one of my best friends I met there and just, it was an incredible experience. Thank you so Thanks much for, for sharing. sharing that story. You know, the way of peace and warriors, the book that like gave me a whole different perspective on life. Mm. It wasn't the book. Sorry. It was Nick Nolte in the movie. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I watched the movie for the first time and my mentor at the time was like, watch this. And I just watched it. And yeah, I was like, wow, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It was a big turning point book for me too. I had a psychic yeah. tell me I should read it when I was 14. So I, <laughs> so I did. <laughs> it's a huge turning point. So amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm curious, what is your, as we wrap up here, I could just talk to you forever. And as I'm listening, I'm like, when's her next retreat that I could sign up for? Come to Bali. I just love your, your wisdom is amazing. I'm curious, what is your desire right now? Just in, in any, it could be in any, it could be for the world, for your business. What are you, what are you chewing on right now? What's your desire? My personal desire is to finish the book that I'm working on. And to also just be able to deliver the teachings that I've received in a way that's really accessible to anybody, regardless of if they have ever done a yoga pose, they don't need to do yoga. That's why I love yoga nidra, because all you need to do is lie down and basically wake up to yourself, right? And to really just connect, connect with people, connect with people deeply, have real conversations real transformations and just live and experience the beauty of life. That's it. It's not too much to ask, right? Yeah, no, no. it's not too much to ask actually. It's not. (laughs) Not at all. What do you think the purpose of life is? The purpose of life is to love and to know that you are love. She knows. (laughs) This is a really good answer. I really feel like that's true. (laughs) That's true. There couldn't be anything else. No, that's totally true. So thank you for this conversation. It was wonderful. I feel so full. Thank you. Should, and she should tell her. I'm people. about to. Oh, okay. I'm just not. <laughs> now I want to know where can people best connect with you if they want to continue further? If they want to continue further, they can connect with me at Tracy with two E's. So it's T-R-A-C-E-E yoga.com. And everything that I'm doing is on my website. You can send me an email if you want, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. You're Thank the you. best. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor, and I have enjoyed the conversation, so thanks. Thank you. Ever feel like you're constantly doing things but aren't able to carve out the time or energy for the things that really matter to you? 
Mike and I want to share our top five tools for making a life, not just a living. To learn what they are, go to katenorthrup.com forward slash tools. See you on the next episode.